Today is uh, week two of a sort of impromptu mini-series I've been doing um, on the theme of transformation, what it means to be changed, transformed more and more into God's image. Last week, we explored the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler, whom Jesus instructed to sell all of his things and go follow him. This week, we turn to an exchange Jesus has with um, two of his disciples, James and John, who are seeking to have the places of honor among the disciples. As I said last week, uh, these stories are challenging. They're challenging. Stories of transformation always are because they disrupt our understanding of ourselves and the world around us as we know it. But the good news is that Jesus promises to be with us, to be with us in this journey as we grow more and more in his image. I invite you to listen now with open hearts and minds as we encounter God's word together from the 10th chapter of Mark's gospel, beginning with the 35th verse. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, we're able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. The film Cool Runnings, which was an absolute classic of my childhood, was inspired by the story of the first Jamaican bobsled team in the 1988 Winter Olympics. In a very memorable scene in that film, one of the team members of the four-man bobsled crew, Sanka, the fun-loving uh, kind of joker of the group, assumed he would be the driver of the bobsled team since he was a champion pushcart driver in Jamaica. Their coach, Irv Blitzer, goes on to explain that, no, Sanka, you won't be the brake man. Or, sorry, no, Sanka, you won't be the driver. You will be the brake man, the guy at the back of the sled whose job was to stop them at the end of their race. Uh, Sanka is obviously offended by this and he challenges the coach on it. But Blitzer, the coach, calmly tells him, you know, the driver has to work harder than anyone else. He's the first to show up. He's the last to leave. 
He stays focused all the time. He studies day in, day out, and takes responsibility of the lives of everyone else on the team. And so he turns to Sanka and asks him if he really wants that responsibility. To which fun-loving Sanka says, no thanks, and gladly takes his spot as the brake man. In our reading this morning, James and John find themselves in a similar situation. They're not quite understanding what they're getting themselves into, at least not until it's explained to them. It's important to remember that this exchange occurs just after Jesus, for a third and final time, predicts his passion. He tells his disciples that what will soon come of his arrest, his persecution, his crucifixion, and death. Now, something to always be sure of when you're reading the gospel, particularly Mark's gospel, is each time Jesus tells the disciples about his coming death and crucifixion, the disciples in turn go on and do something really, really foolish afterwards. Jesus predicts and gives his disciples a heads up of what's to come about his death, and in turn, true to form, the disciples go on to do something really, really silly. So right on cue, as I said, right after Jesus' third passion prediction, come James and John, whom Jesus nicknames the Sons of Thunder. Pretty cool nickname. They ask to be at Jesus' right and left hand, to have the places of honor in his glory. So you can understand, and I kind of get a little chuckle every time I get to this point in the story, the other ten disciples are a little upset by this. Perhaps because James and John think they're better deserving of these honored places, or maybe the other ten are upset because they wish they would have asked Jesus first. Their teacher, Jesus, jumps right in to warn them, much like Blitzer and Cool Runnings, that James and John don't know what they're asking for and what it ultimately means to drink from his cup, to share in his baptism. Jesus seems to encourage these sons of thunder to really think about this request and re and to reconsider what it really means to seek your own glory and promotion over others. Now, as I shared with the children a little bit ago, it's no secret that in our society we highly value places and roles of honor and glory. We love being first. So much so that our attitude is best summed up by the motto of the fictional race car driver Ricky Bobby in the film Talladega Nights who said, if you ain't first, you're last. This constant perennial striving against one another in competition has a tendency of giving us, like James and John, an inflated sense of ourselves and of our own abilities. For instance, just about 80% of us in one survey consider ourselves to be better than average drivers. I'm not a math person by a long shot, but I'm guessing that that's something that's statistically impossible. This sort of phenomenon is what social psychologist David Myers calls the Lake Wobegon effect. That's named after the Garrison Keillor fictional town where all the women are strong, all the men are good looking, and all the children are above average. As a result, we often seek out our own self-promotion. We seek out our own glory above all else and very possibly before all others, 
and often to no other end. This is true of individuals and communities alike, and the church is included in that. How often do we and other congregations seek our own glory rather than God's? I know at times I and plenty of other church leaders from across traditions and geography have a tendency to think about a new ministry or a new program as part of our own congregation's success, admittedly our own success, rather than the promotion of the good news and God's reign taking shape on earth. This time now when, sadly, the church doesn't have the influence in society it once did, perhaps God is showing us a different path. Now, to return to our lesson, Jesus thankfully doesn't scold the disciples and doesn't use it to scold James and John and make them despised among their 12 brothers. Instead, he uses this as a teaching opportunity. Jesus tells them that among the Gentiles, those in power lord it over others. The greatest among them are tyrants. New Testament scholar Matt Skinner gives us some helpful context here in reminding us just of how oppressive the power of the Roman Empire was. This is true for Jesus' time uh, and his disciples, as he'll soon be arrested and killed at the hands of such Gentile rulers, lording their power over the people of Judea. But Skinner notes that when Mark writes his gospel, several decades later, of course, his readers were living through a devastating time when Rome was crushing a Judean uprising, resulting in the death of thousands and thousands of people around Jerusalem. So in other words, Jesus and his disciples and then Mark and his audience were pretty good witnesses of this lording over, this tyrannical rule in a very real way. Jesus tells James, John, and the other disciples that this isn't how it's going to be among you. No. Those who want to be great must be servants. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve others even to the point of giving his very own life. Jesus calls the twelve away from the relentless rat race of self-promotion and jockeying for position. Instead, he calls them to serve others in his name, to seek the promotion not of themselves, but of the kingdom, of the very reign of God who calls us to care for others. Now, today, far too many leaders sadly use power in its many forms to lord it over others and for their own benefit and promotion. It's a reminder that this temptation is always present in human community. It's part of the brokenness of our world. But the good news, friends, is that Jesus tells the disciples and us that this is not the way it has to be. Or more importantly, this is not who God has called us to be. We can live into this alternate way of glory Jesus commends, seeking not our own glory and promotion, but that of the kingdom. We do this by serving one another, by serving our neighbors. Here at WPC, our mission statement and tagline for decades has been a servant community. We are a servant community of our servant Lord. 
Our lesson today, in essence, is really a reminder of who we are and who God has called us to be right here and now. A servant community is not called to be inward-facing, but always looking outward to the needs of our neighbors. A servant community is not called to jockey for position to be the best or the biggest, but rather to engage deeply with our neighbors in relationship and fellowship that we might join together in ministry to care for the broken world God so loves. As a servant community, we're called not to our own success and glory, but rather to be ambassadors of God's reign of love and peace. You know, whenever I get a chance to show a visitor around our church building and I get to take them to the sanctuary, and I think I've done this with several of you when you're visiting our church, I always stop to talk about my two favorite things in this room. My two favorite things about the space where we gather for worship each day. The first of these two favorite things is that our worship space is asymmetrical. You see this? How our pews are... um, we don't quite have a symmetrical shape in our worship space. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, folks who have been here much longer than I have, but I believe that was done by design so that the sanctuary could be expanded someday if the need were to ever arise. Now, some might look at that and say that um, an asymmetrical sanctuary means that it's, Uh, incomplete. I choose to think of it as being unfinished. It's a reminder every time we gather in this asymmetrical space that God's not done with us yet. The second, and my favorite of the two of these things, but my favorite thing of the sanctuary are these windows right here. These windows that look right out onto Main Street, right into the very heart of our town and our community here in Warrenton. It's a reminder that whenever we gather to worship here, we're not enclosed, we're not cloistered away. We are looking out and we're preparing ourselves to go back out into the world to serve our neighbors who God so loves and our community that God calls good. It's uh, actually a very literal reflection. These windows are a very literal reflection of what Catholic theologian Hans Kung said uh, about 50 years ago when he said that there is nothing in the church which ought not to be done with windows open to the street while concentrating on the work in hand, not simply staring out the windows. It's a visible reminder, friends, that every time we gather to worship, we're not closed off. We're not inward looking. We are called to look out into our community that we might better join in fellowship and service with our neighbors to participate in God's reign taking shape in our world. One of our elders loves to say that it doesn't matter if a program has WPC's name on it. It'll have Jesus' name on it. And that's what really matters. When we commit ourselves to serving our community, when we commit ourselves to join in solidarity with our neighbors to understand their needs, their hopes, their dreams, and find ways to work together, we put Jesus' name on our hearts 
and within our very own community by living into this vision. May the story of Jesus calling his disciples to a way of service rather than glory help us to remember who we really are as a servant community. As we look out onto our windows, onto Main Street, into our very neighborhood, may God's Spirit inspire us to go outside our building, to connect with our neighbors in joy and solidarity, that we might join together in fellowship and service to proclaim God's reign of peace taking shape here and now. May it be so, friends.